0: If you have your Bible, let's turn together today to Romans chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, then you can take one of the black Bibles on the end of each pew, and in that Bible, I believe it's on page 947. Romans 12, 1 is where we'll be looking, and let me just read for us Romans 12, 1 and 2. We'll get to verse 2 next week. Lord willing. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God which is your spiritual worship do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God what is the good uh, what is good and acceptable and perfect uh, just imagine that you are an orphan on the streets of London. And not today. Maybe imagine that it's about 300 years ago. I don't think we quite know what that's like, but we probably at least have a stereotypical picture of it in our heads. And you're hungry, you're dirty, you're tired, and you're on guard for threats to your life 24-7. Imagine that you're out there covered in that muck, and then the king's procession comes by, and the crowd parts and the king comes up to you and says, I saw you and I have compassion on you and I'm adopting you as my child. Would you then stay in the streets and keep stealing bread? Of course not. It's, it's not just unreasonable or unlikely that you'd do that. It's impossible that you'd do that. After you've been adopted by the king out of that position, things are going to change. Your life is going to be very different. And we actually have something that's much greater than that as those who have been adopted by our king, who is God himself. As we've come to faith in Jesus Christ, as we've been born again, we've been united to Jesus, the Son of God, adopted into his family... And it's not just likely or reasonable, but certain that if you have been adopted by God out of your sin and into his kingdom, that's going to be life-changing. Now, are you immediately going to know how to behave in every way? Is that orphan off the streets of London going to immediately show up in the palace and know just the right things to do in all of the ceremonies, and just where all of the forks go, and all of those kinds of things. Obviously not. <laughs> it's going to be a learning process, and we who have come to faith in Jesus, we have a lifelong learning process of what it means to now live as children of the king, but it's going to be life-changing. It just is. And, and it's impossible that somebody can become a Christian, and then their lives go on unchanged. Unchanged. You know, it's possible that people can say uh, that they're Christians and it not be true, and then their lives be unchanged. It's possible that someone can come forward at a big revival service and pray a prayer with a counselor and get a card that says you're saved forever because you prayed this prayer, but actually not be a believer and their lives not be changed. That's possible, but here's the reality. If God has actually saved you, if he has actually, by the Holy Spirit, caused you to be born again, applied the redeeming work of the cross of Jesus to your heart, saved you from sin and adopted you as his child, if that's the case, it is life-changing. That's just, it's just as simple as that. If you receive Jesus as your priest who forgives you of your sins, you can't not also receive him as your prophet who instructs you in the way to live and as your king who rules over you. We, we receive the whole Jesus and it's life-changing. The, uh, the idea that somebody could receive mercy from God to be forgiven of their sins by the sacrifice of Christ, to be adopted as his children and then remain in their old way of life is not just unreasonable, it's impossible. And the reality of the mercy that we have received from God is going to pour out in a changed life. I'll just read you a verse about this from another part of Scripture, Titus 2.14. You could go to a lot of verses about this, but I'll just read this one. It says that Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. You hear that? He's redeemed us, not so that we can then say, I'm forgiven of all my sins no matter what, let's party. No, he's redeemed us to purify us. You don't get rescued out of the lava in the middle of a volcano and then say, Boy, I sure am glad I'm rescued. Now I'm going to go swim in the lava as a rescued person. You don't say, wow, God has saved me from my sin, so I want to live in that sin that Jesus was crucified for. It's life-changing. It's life-changing. And that's kind of the point that we've come to in the whole book of Romans. We have 11 chapters that we've walked through, verse by verse, all the way, one, all the way through, I won't count them all out for you, 11 chapters. And as we get to the end of chapter 11... The whole first part, the whole first half of Romans has been dealing with the reality of what God has done for us in Christ. And now he's going to turn in light of that reality and say, now here is how you should live as redeemed people. And this is really normal in the letters of Paul. Romans is a great example of it, but just about any letter of Paul that you come to in the New Testament, and there are 13 of them, most of them are going to have this kind of general outline where the first half of the letter has to do with roughly doctrine and then the second half of the letter has to do roughly with practical application. Now, you don't want to separate it out that closely because it's not like there's no practical application in the first half and no doctrine in the second half or something like that. But but here's what he's doing. He's saying, here is who you, believer, reading through this letter. First 11 chapters tell you, here is who you are in Christ already. This is what God has done for you. And now, chapter 12 to the end of the book, are going to say, now that this is who you are, live as who you are. Live it out in Christ. There's one theologian who, who put it this way, become what thou art. And so that's the turn that the book of Romans is taking right now. When, when he says... The therefore at the beginning, I appeal, appeal to you, therefore, that therefore is, is taking up the whole first 11 chapters of the book. Sometimes when you come across a therefore in the Bible, it could be just talking about like the phrase that came right before it, or the verse, or the paragraph, or maybe even the chapter, or maybe in the section. This is talking about the entire first 11 chapters of Romans. So let me just remind you, and, and I reminded you a little bit last week because we were in the, the part that was summing it all up, but let me remind you what's come before in the book of Romans. He, he started out in, in the first chapter giving an introduction to the gospel and then moving on in chapter 1, verse 18, all the way to through chapter 3, verse 20, of showing our need for the gospel, the fact that every single human being is a sinner condemned in our sins Unless God intervenes by his grace, unless we turn to Jesus in faith, that includes both Gentiles and Jews, it includes both the most libertine pagan that you might meet out there in the world, and it also includes the church kids who know exactly the way to behave to please their parents, that every single one of us needs the redemption in Jesus that only comes Because he is the propitiation for our sins. And that's where he goes after that. After he showed that we're all in ourselves lost in sin under what was the old covenant of works, the relationship of how will I relate to God in whether I'm good or bad, that old system will condemn us all, but God has made a way for us to be saved, not by our works, but by his own grace, given to us in jesus christ that's what chapter 3 verse 21 through chapter 4 verse 25 is about is that both jews and gentiles church kids and pagans and everybody in between whether in this nation or any other nation of the world everybody in sin can be saved by god's grace alone through faith alone in christ alone because jesus has been given on the cross as the full propitiation for our sins, to take the fullness of the wrath of the Father on himself in the cross. Chapters five through eight give assurance to believers in Christ, assurance even though we're we're still walking through a world where we sin, that we still have no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Even though we're walking through a world where we suffer, that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. And chapters 9 through 11 bring out some of the mysterious, puzzling questions. Questions related to why is it that so many of the Jewish people have rejected Jesus, the Jewish Savior, and it gets into some deep things that are hard to understand. In chapter 9, about the reality of God's election of individuals to salvation from before the foundation of the world by his sovereign choice alone whether of Jews or of Gentiles, and that he's done that for his glory. Chapter 10, that that those who reject Christ, whether Jew or Gentile, that they are under the wrath of God by their own choice as well, that they have voluntarily turned their backs on him. And in chapter 11, God's mysterious plans for redeeming more and more people into that olive tree of the people of God Beautiful things there, and all of that summed up at the end of chapter 11 in this reflection of the majesty and the praise of this glorious God, where he said, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, and who has been his counselor, or who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be glory forever amen you might get to that amen and say well you might as well just end the book right there but no he says therefore my brothers in light of all of that that's just been laid out in the first 11 chapters therefore by the mercies of god present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to god which is your spiritual worship Now, after we get through this verse, as we go through the remaining chapters in Romans, there's going to be a thorough description in a number of ways of what it looks like to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, what it looks like in the context of the church, what it looks like in the context of dealing with people who sin against you, what it looks like in the context of dealing with the government, in the context of dealing with weak Christians, and that's in Romans 14. All kinds of, of things that are, are laid out for us here, but that's what it's all going to turn on is the idea, hey, you've been purchased by the blood of Christ. You're now Christ's. God has given you his mercy in Christ, and you're all his now. So live that way. Become what you are in Christ. If you're following the outline, there's a few points there. It's on the back of the bulletin. I hope that'll help you a little bit. But let's think about the reason for this worship of God that He's calling us to, which is His mercies. His mercies. He says, "I appeal to you, therefore, brothers." I'm going to pause there really quick. Just the fact that He says "brothers" is significant. He, He, if anybody could claim to be on sort of a super spiritual level above other Christians. Wouldn't it be an apostle? Wouldn't it be Paul, who who was met by the risen Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus, who testifies about himself in the opening chapters of Galatians that he actually learned his doctrine directly from Jesus Christ, was commissioned by Jesus as an apostle to go and to to, to train all of these missionaries and, and to be used of God to write 13 books of the Bible? But do you know what he calls the the people the people in the pews you might say in Romans excuse me in the church in Rome and what he's calling us brothers that's amazing isn't it that that ought to kind of give you a little bit of pause when somebody calls themselves father in the church don't you think I could go down that rabbit trail but I won't But he says, brothers, he says, brothers, and here's how he appeals to us. Here's how he encourages us and says, here's what we should do. He says, I appeal to you by the mercies of God, by the mercies of God. He's turning from the is to the ought, what you you are to what you ought to be by the mercies of God. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means that we need to look to the mercies of God first when we're considering how we ought to live, right? If, if the way that you're dealing with God in how you ought to live is to look to the law first, there's going to be some problems. Because you know what Romans chapter 7 says happens when you look to the law first, It says that it starts stirring up things in your heart that ought not to be stirred up. It says that Paul says I wouldn't have known what it was to covet if I hadn't read in the law what it says you shall not covet. But then the law taking hold stirred up all kinds of covetousness in me. He doesn't say I appeal to you by the raw commands of God, does he? If you're going to say to yourself, well how am I going to Live the Christian life, how am I going to walk away from the sin that I feel convicted of and walk into the holiness that God calls me to walk in? If your starting point is just this raw determination, I'm going to do better. I'm going to read the rule book and I'm going to follow it. I'm going to do better. Well, then you're in Romans 7 territory, where you're going to find yourself crying out, not, God, look how much better I've done. But God, who will deliver me from this body of death? But he says, instead of that, I appeal to you by the mercies of God. By the mercies of God. That mercies of God is saying, hey, here's the starting point for all of this. The mercies of God show us that we can go to God as the one who first loved us and then turn in him to love. This is really what all of this is about. These, these chapters that come after Romans 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, you know what they are. Num- <laughs> I don't have to list the numbers for you, do I? That's what they're all about is the fact that we're called to love, to love God first and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Those are the first and greatest commandments that, that Jesus listed when he was asked what is the greatest commandment. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And here's what he says. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. He's gonna say in Romans chapter 13 that there's, he lists out these commandments that are from the second half of the 10 commandments. He says, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet and any other commandment, these are all summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's what we call the law of love, and it's a summary of the Ten Commandments. Every command that God has given us is a command to love, to love God and to love our neighbor. And if you want to know the definition of what it looks like to love God and to love your neighbor, read the commands of God. Following those commands is what it looks like. And yet he says here, not start with the commands, but start with the mercies. Start with the mercies of God and Jesus Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God. It's very important as really what we're doing and what Paul is doing here in this turn in the book of Romans in chapter 12 is a turn really from the gospel to the law. And that doesn't mean from the good to the bad. It's from the good to the good. The gospel is that good news of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. The law is the rules of what we ought to be doing for God. Both of those things are good. And when I say Paul is turning to the law, I'm not saying that he's turning to the Old Testament sacrifices. I'm not saying that he's turning to the Old Testament penalties for various crimes and the judicial laws. I'm saying that what he's doing is he's, he is turning in general from the first half of Romans where he said, here is what God has done for you sinners, to now in the second half of Romans saying, you who have received the free gift of God in, of eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord, here's how you now live. Here is the law that you can walk after that is not burdensome. Uh, the, these things are in harmony. I want to read you something about this from our own confession of faith here at the church, the 1853 version of the New Hampshire Baptist Confession. It has a whole section that's called The Harmony of the Law and the Gospel. And it is the most convoluted sentence in the whole thing. But I'm going to read it to you. It says We believe that the law of God is the eternal and unchangeable rule of his moral government, that it is holy, just, and good and that the inability which the Scriptures ascribe to fallen men to fulfill its precepts arises entirely from their love of sin, to deliver them from which, and to restore them through a mediator to unfeigned obedience to the law, is one great end of the gospel and of the means of grace connected with the establishment of the visible church. Let me summarize that. That's saying that we, as as those who believe the gospel, that Jesus died for sinners and saves us by his grace alone, through faith alone, not on the basis of any of our works, we believe that gospel. And we see that believing that gospel is in harmony with the idea that saved sinners ought to obey what God says. That's the law. What, What God says you ought to do or not to do that as we have been saved from our sins by God's grace through faith in Christ that it's it's in keeping with that gospel to now walk in obedience after him we believe that but we don't go to it again i just want to emphasize we don't go to it saying well we we now must force ourselves somehow to love god we now must force ourselves somehow to love neighbor. We must force ourselves somehow to follow these commands of God by the strength of our own hearts, which is really saying by the flesh. You can't do that. What we do instead is we appeal to the mercies of God. By the mercies of God. Here's one verse that really sums this up. 1 John 4:19. We love Because he first loved us. Do you hear that? We love because he first loved us. This appeal to believing Christians is different than the appeal to the unbelieving world. The appeal to the unbelieving world, when I say appeal, I mean the call to obey, the call to come to Jesus. That call to the unbelieving world is is what Jesus preached so often about avoiding hell. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. As John the Baptist preached, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? If you don't know Christ as your Savior, here is is my appeal to you. It's not by the mercies of God just yet. You also need to consider the reality that no matter how good you think you're doing, if you have broken A single part of the Ten Commandments in your actions in your words or in your heart ever you are condemned to hell for that and rightly so by the holy and righteous God and unless you repent you will likewise perish and so if you're lost in your sins I appeal to you today by the judgment of God and the reality of the eternal hell turn to faith in Jesus Jesus went to the cross Jesus took the punishment for sinners like you. Turn to him, believe, receive the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. Now those of you who believe in the Lord Jesus have received that mercy, there's now a different appeal to us. The appeal to us is not, do this and live. That's called the covenant of works. That's the old system that would condemn us. We now have what's called the covenant of grace in Christ. You've already been given mercy. You've already been given grace. You're not an orphan walking up to the palace and trying to sneak in and getting caught in your dirty clothes and thrown out. You have already been adopted by the king. You've already been brought in. He has already washed you and set you free, and given you everything that is his. You've already been brought in, and so not to make yourself right with God, not to to somehow prove that you deserve to be in heaven, but because God has already brought you as an undeserving sinner into his grace, into his kingdom by his son Jesus. Now because he first loved us, We are free to love him. And so I appeal to you, believers in Jesus, as Paul is appealing to you, brothers, believers in Jesus, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. It's amazing that God would do this for us. Just thinking back on what's come before in all of these previous chapters. Romans 1.18 says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. That ungodliness has to do with breaking the first four commandments, the call to worship God rightly and know him and love him. And that unrighteousness has to do with breaking the last six commandments and our love for neighbor and the call to not commit adultery, the call to not bear false witness, not covet, all those kinds of things. That's what we were lost in. But now, God has taken ungodly, unrighteous people like me and you, fellow brother in Christ, sister in Christ. He's taken us and he's shown us mercy. And we can say, thank you, God. Thank you in light of your compassion. If you want to know what are some of the mercies that we've been given, well, you can go back and read the first 11 chapters of Romans. But I'll just tell you some of the ones that are listed there. There's the mercy of God in his patience toward us as sinners in Romans 2. There's the mercy of God in that Christ has given himself as the propitiation for our sins, the atoning sacrifice to turn away the wrath of God for us. There's the mercy of the free gift of eternal life that we're given in Christ. There's the mercy of uniting us to Christ. That, that now we are united to him in a death like his and we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We've been raised to newness of life when Jesus got up from the dead. We, we have the mercy of receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit who has come to indwell us as believers, who Romans 8 says is helping us, who's crying out with us in, from the heart to God the Father, Abba, Father, who is interceding for us with groanings too deep for words and helping our prayers make it to God the right way. We, we have the, uh, the adoption as children that we've received. We, we've been, uh, we have the mercy of, of making us dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. We have the mercy that he perseveres us in our faith even though we sometimes look around and say, Why did I commit that sin? Who's going to rescue me from this body of death? Praise be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He will. And even though we suffer and we say, Why, O oh Lord? How long, O oh Lord? Why is this happening? Yet He would keep us in Christ, and nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. We've got the certainty of being with him forever in glory. We've got the reality of getting to know about the mystery of election that he laid out. What a mercy it is of God that he chose us from before the foundation of the world. Amazing, amazing. Uh, and, And you could go on and on with all the mercies, even that are just listed in the book of Romans. And there's so many more that are told to us throughout the scriptures. But he says here's what you do. Consider those mercies of God. Don't, don't come to God and say, okay, well, I'm, I'm going to just look at the law and obey it. I'm going to brute force determine my way into it and then end up in that situation of wretched man that I am. John Murray says, it is the mercy of God that melts the heart. So if you are, if you are deeply aware today that you need to do a better job obeying God, start with the mercy of God. Let the fact that you've already been forgiven as a believer in Christ, let that be what motivates you to obey him. Not as some kind of a, I'm gonna prove God that I, to God that I belong here kind of thing. But no, I wanna live out of thanksgiving and praise to this God who already accepts me and sympathizes with me in my weakness. Amazing, that's what it says in Hebrews. The sacrifice that we bring for our worship This is the second point on your outline. The sacrifice we bring is our bodies. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, sacrifices in the Scripture go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Not before Adam and Eve sinned. Before Adam and Eve sinned, there was no death, including animal death. After Adam and Eve sinned, do you know who made the first animal sacrifice? God himself. He's the one who killed those animals so that he could put those skins to cover the shame of Adam and Eve, made them clothing out of the sacrificed animals. And sacrifice had been part of worship from there on out. You see it with Cain and Abel. You see it all the way through Abraham. You see it with Moses, all the way through what was going on, all the way up into the time of Jesus where there would have been Just a a river of blood from lambs flowing from the Passover sacrifice even as Jesus was being walked away to the cross. Can you imagine what it was like after all of those years of just equating in your mind the worship of God with killing an animal? That now that's stopped? That's kind of the position that they're in right here in the early days of Christianity. How is it now that we're worshiping God without killing something? What is worship, if not the death of an animal? That would have been a large feeling on a lot of people's minds, especially the Christians with a Jewish background. But he doesn't say we have no worship to offer anymore. We we know from elsewhere in Scripture that the reason that animals don't have to be killed anymore, the reason we don't have to bring literal sacrifices anymore, is that Christ is our Passover lamb who has been sacrificed. He, he's the one who gave himself in one act of righteousness, his single sacrifice on the cross, to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify us, a people for his possession. He's he's the one who finished it. All of those sacrifices, all the way from the Garden of Eden, all the way up to that last Passover as Jesus was being crucified himself, all of those were pointing forward to the need of a greater sacrifice than the blood of bulls and goats, which is the blood of the Son of God the only thing that can truly take away sins. Jesus' is death for us. But he says, we're going to continue to worship. And if you need the sacrifice language as part of your worship, well, here's what it is. Here's your sacrifice that you give. It's not re-sacrificing Christ in the Eucharist. It's nothing like that. We, we don't have altars in our church building because we don't make any more sacrifices. Jesus has been sacrificed. But here is our worship sacrifice. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, does that mean that you're supposed to go and find some way to martyr yourself? No, because it says living sacrifice, not dying sacrifice. We'll get to that in just a second. But it says your bodies, your bodies are the sacrifice. It's the offering of ourselves, it's the offering of our whole selves we are made up as spiritual beings of body and soul together in one creature and he's going to get to that idea of the soul and the mind in verse 2 but right now he uses the word bodies and that's significant this physical body that you have is you it's not some empty shell of you that's just a temporary container for your soul it's you And it's an offering to God. And Jesus, when he died on the cross, did it. He died in soul and body. And he rose in soul and body. And one day, God is going to raise our bodies from the dead. Or if you're alive at the time when Jesus returns, transform your lowly body into that heavenly body. Your soul and your body will be together as one person forever and ever. In Greek philosophy, there was this idea that the body is just this thing that, that is sort of an inconvenience to the soul. That, that the soul is where you really do all your holiness. That the soul is where, where the real you is. And the body is just something that, that boy, it's, it's just a drag. Sometimes in those philosophies, they would, they would even get to the point of saying that, that dying was freedom because it separated your body from your soul and that that was a good thing. That's not the way that God has made us. That is not God's view of us. It actually says that the whole creation, this was back in Romans 8, is eagerly awaiting that day when the sons of God will be revealed that we are waiting for that day of the redemption of our bodies. You hear that? This body that you're in, it's part of what Jesus died for to redeem you. And so he says, present your body as a living sacrifice to him. We, we need to realize that what we do in our bodies matters. What we do in our bodies matters. What we do in our bodies in the worship service ought to be worship. And what we do with our bodies, the other 99% of our time, outside of the worship service, ought to be worship. That's what it's saying. Here is your spiritual worship. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Uh, That means, for one thing, that you can't keep your faith in Jesus as just a private, internal thing. You can't keep your faith in Jesus as just, well, this is what's going to be in my heart and in my head and maybe in my home and in my church pew, but then I can go out and, and live in the rest of the world as the world would want me to live. No, he's saying the whole time. Here, here's what it looks like to be an unhypocritical worshiper of God is to realize that the whole life that you're living in this body, no matter where you go, is called by us to be an act of worship to God. Now, the world around us objects to that. A few years ago, I, I had uh, a, a chance encounter. I got to meet a New York Times columnist whose name was Frank Bruni. And uh, when I talked to him, I didn't know anything about him. Um, but he was very polite to me, even though he knew I was a pastor. So I appreciate that he was very polite to me. Uh, but it was after I had had that conversation with him that I looked him up and I found out that he had written this article that had made a big splash uh, where he argued that Christians should only have the right to hold to biblical sexual ethics in private and that in public you got to get with the program. That was the gist of it. Here, here was the last... Uh, the last closing sentences of that article that he wrote. He said, I support the right of people to believe what they do and say what they wish in their pews, homes, and hearts. But outside of those places, you must put up with me just as I put up with you. Now, what does that mean? That, that this, is, this is the way that so much of the world would look at us as Christians is, okay, we'll let you have that religious freedom as long as you keep it tucked away in your heart and inside your church building but when you come out here in the world, you better get with our program. Isn't that interesting? Because the world also accuses us of being hypocrites all the time, don't they? When it's convenient to the world, they'll accuse us of being hypocrites, and when it's convenient to the world, they'll demand that we be hypocrites. That's what they're demanding, is believe it in your heart, but don't live it out in your body outside of the church walls. Well, this says present your whole self, your body, your soul, your mind, all of who you are as a living sacrifice to God determined to worship God in being consistent in who you are. Your body, by the way, does not belong to you. This is another thing, the the way that the world and Satan would lie to you, to say that your body belongs to you and that you can do with it as you choose. That if you feel in your heart that you are someone who doesn't match your body that you should change your body to match that. That's one of the newer things. Romans 1 says that people will be inventors of evil. That's one of those newly invented evils. But there's been things like this all the way through. People wanting to say, well, okay, well, um, I, yeah, I know that God would have these things, but God also built these sexual urges into me, and therefore he must want me to act on them. No. God owns your body. You don't own your body. It is not my body, my choice. God, here's what it says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. That's the principle that we're to follow. Jesus bought us. Jesus bought you, not just your soul, but your whole body with every single one of its parts. And he owns you, and he says, use your body to glorify God. Now, in the the lostness of mankind, it said back in Romans 1 that in that lostness, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women, and they were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done, and they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. And the list of unrighteousness goes on and on and on. That's where you are when you're lost, when you don't know God, when you haven't been redeemed by Christ. You just think, I should do what I feel like with my body, because it's natural. Another way it's put in Ephesians 4 is they are darkened in their understanding. Alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learn Christ. That's not the way you learn Christ. So, when we have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus and adopted in, here's one of the basic lessons of the Christian life don't do whatever you feel like doing with your body anymore. Honor God with your body. Realize that Jesus died for you, including your body. Here's what he says in Romans 6. He's kind of already dealt with this in Romans, but he says, You must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members, and by members he means body parts, even the ones that we keep covered up most of the time. Do not present those body parts to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. So present your bodies as a living sacrifice. We don't want to be slaves to impurity. We want to be slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification, Romans 6.19. Now, if you're wondering some specifics of what does it look like to present my body as a living sacrifice, well, those specifics are going to be given throughout the rest of the book of Romans. But I'll just read you what Chrysostom said. He was one of the great preachers of the early centuries of the church. He said, "How is the body? It may be said to become a sacrifice. Let the eye look on no evil thing, and it has become a sacrifice. Let your tongue speak nothing filthy, and it has become an offering." Let your hand do no lawless deed, and it has become a whole burnt offering. The sacrifice of our bodies is to be a living sacrifice. Those sacrifices in the Old Testament, put up on the altar, slaughtered, dead, gone. That's not how we're to live for God. We're to go on living as an ongoing sacrifice of our lives. He calls us to be a sacrifice that is holy. Holy here. He uses a word in in the Greek version. It's the same as a word that was used in the Old Testament to describe objects that were set apart for worship. These objects in the tabernacle, objects in the priestly garments and the sacrifices, same word. He's saying, set your body apart as holy before God, just as seriously and hopefully more seriously than those Old Testament priests took setting apart those objects as holy be setting our part our bodies as acceptable to god too acceptable to god now remember that these old testament sacrifices god wasn't looking for the leftovers god wasn't looking for the extra sheep that nobody was going to want to eat in your flock and so you just kill that one as the offering to god or the one that's not worth as much money to sell to somebody else, the blemished. No, he's looking for the first, the best. And what is he looking for from us? The First and the best. God's not looking for your leftovers. He's looking for what is acceptable to God. I do have an encouragement for you in that. If you say to yourself, well, if that's the case, if he's looking for me to be holy and acceptable... I might as well give up. Sometimes, when we're honest with ourselves, we can come face to face with that reality. Here's some good news about that it says in 1 Peter 2 5 that as as Christians who are being built up as a holy priesthood, it says that we offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You hear that? If you were to say to yourself, well, I'm, I'm just going to be acceptable, I'm just going to be holy, well, y- you'd be missing the first part of the verse, by the mercies of God, remember? Not by just determining I'm going to be a holy, acceptable sacrifice. It is Jesus who died for your sins. It is Jesus who, no matter how imperfect, no matter how immature your attempts are to present yourself as an offering to God, Jesus, by his blood, cleanses that believer. He he makes us so that we can offer these spiritual sacrifices that are not just given, but acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. There's a practical element, too, listed in 2 Timothy 2. He says, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So what do you do? Flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with all of those who call on the name of the Lord with a pure heart. And the last thing it says in this verse is to do this as our reasonable or as our spiritual worship. Now, what does he mean here by spiritual worship or reasonable worship? That word is one that's only used twice in the New Testament, so it's hard to translate and other versions of the Bible besides the one that you have may translate it differently. But I think what it's getting at here is this is worship of God that's not just in the physical realm. It's worship of God that has to do with bringing along our whole selves, body, mind, spirit. And it's also reasonable. What's the way that the, uh, that the King James translates it, as your reasonable worship. It makes sense in light of what God has done for us to do this, that we are to worship in this way. But it just points out, too, hey, we don't just have a worship service. We're called to worship throughout our lives. Now, are we called to be here in the worship service? Don't get me wrong, okay? Because sometimes you will hear, I would say well-meaning, but I don't think it's really well-meaning, Christians say, well, I don't actually have to go to church because Jesus worshipped all the time out on the hillsides and everywhere he went. Do you know what else Jesus did? Read the beginning of Luke four. You'll see that it was his habit on the Sabbath day to worship in the synagogue. Even knowing that a lot of people leading that worship were wrong about it. <laughs> and and, and he, he made sure that he was there present for the gathering of the people of God to worship God. That is part of our worship. All right? and everything that we do as part of our service is an act of corporate worship don't, please, please, please I will, I, I will resist the temptation to scream at you if you do this but please don't use the word worship interchangeably with singing okay singing is one aspect of what we do in corporate worship to praise our God And everything that we do in corporate worship is also to praise our God. Our prayers, the thing that we put front and center, the pulpit, the, the word of God being received by us, this is actually the primary way that God has called us to worship corporately. But all of what we do in this worship service is called to be worship. But here's the twist that he's putting on it it's not just about what we do here, it's our whole lives. Now, you're you're certainly not presenting your body as a living sacrifice if you're voluntarily choosing to put your body somewhere other than church on Sundays, all right? But, don't be a hypocrite. (laughs) When we go out from here, let's keep on worshiping God in who we are and what we do with our bodies. The point here is that God doesn't want us to confine our worship to what you say and do here and there sometimes. He wants all of you all the time God, I'm going to repeat that, God wants all of you all the time. If that sounds bad, I encourage you to repent and believe and be saved. And to come to know this God who it's not bad to present yourself to all the time in all of you. Come to know him, come to love him by looking to the love that he's demonstrated for us on the cross and embracing Jesus as your Savior and Lord. And us who have trusted in Jesus, who've been born again, in light of his mercies, let's be encouraged to live our whole lives for him. Let's pray together. God, thank you for the mercies of God in Jesus Christ that we've received. God, I pray that you would teach us what it looks like to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, to carry out this spiritual worship. God, we do thank you for giving us corporate worship to gather together. We thank you also for giving us times of worship in private by ourselves. Thank you for giving us times that are set aside for worship together as families. And God, I pray that you would help us by your grace not to confine our worship just to those specific set aside times, but to present all of who we are to you. Lord, we, we pray that you would cleanse us and forgive us by the blood of Christ. God, if this were the standard, For how to get to heaven, we'd all be lost, but we pray that by your grace that you'd help us more and more, considering the mercies of Jesus, to present ourselves in all that we are as an act of worship to you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.